morning. Well, praise the Lord. Let's, uh, I love to sing about the faithfulness of God. And I know a lot, of the, a lot of our songs this morning were about that. So it just reminds us that we can trust in Jesus. He's true. He's faithful. He keeps his word. He keeps his promise. I mean, you can build your life on Jesus. And uh, jump in with all with both feet. If, I don't know how many of you might be here today and you never really have surrendered to Jesus. Or maybe you've never jumped in with both feet. You can He's so trustworthy, so faithful. And uh, the fear that sometimes we have of just giving ourselves fully to the Lord will go away the minute you do. It's almost like uh, that jumping into water the first time. You know, you, you kind of dip your toe in there. You think, oh, it's a little cold. You don't want to do it. But when you, when you just jump in, all of a sudden, everything's great. But I encourage you. To give your heart to Jesus fully. He's faithful and trustworthy. I want to talk this morning from uh, the scripture in Acts 11. And uh, let's pray before we do. Father, open your word to us this morning and teach us these principles that will help us be a testimony for Jesus in this world that's full of skepticism and unbelief. I ask you, Lord, to teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pop in just a little bit, Jeff. You know, we live in this world. We go out and share the gospel with people. And there's a lot of um, what's called agnostics in the world today, which basically just means people don't, they just don't believe that you can have evidence for God. That's really what it means. It's like, how, how can you even prove he exists? So you just, you kind of have this idea, you go through life. Well, he may be, he may not be, you really can't prove it. And they're, they're looking to try to prove God by some scientific method. Like, I, I've, I've never seen him, I've never heard him, I've never touched him. How can he be real? And I want to share with you this morning from the Bible, what the title of the message is called, A Simple Evidence for the Existence of God. And um, bottom line is, if people don't want to believe, they're not going to believe. I mean, Jesus one time said they won't, they won't even believe even if someone rises from the dead. I think that's what Abraham told uh, the, the, the rich man who was put in, in hell, you know, when he died and went to hell. And he said, please send someone back. They'll, my brothers will believe if someone comes back from the dead. He goes, even if they come back from the dead, they won't believe. So there, there's sometimes this kind of a hardcore resistance to even believing Anything that's not scientifically provable. Like, like, I can't touch him, I can't hear him, I can't see him. But there is surely evidence of God's existence, and we see it in the Scripture. And I, the reason I want to share this with you today is not that I believe you're agnostic, but that we can become that kind of community. That we, as a body of believers, can be you know, a, a people who show the evidence of Christ. By what he does in our lives. So let's start there in Acts 11, verse 19. <clears throat> it says, um, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution. So there was this persecution that arose up in the early church, and people in Jerusalem began to run and scatter because of that. 
This arose over Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and a town called Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. I want to show you a little map here. This is kind of what it looks like. So you have Jerusalem down there in the lower right. It's 500 miles up to Antioch. And uh, remember, this, this persecution took place in Jerusalem, so people began to scatter and run. And as they're running, the neat thing about it was, is they kept preaching Jesus. They didn't stop giving the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, no matter where they went. And so 500 miles away, they end up in Antioch. And it says there were also people from Cyrene, which is clear over here, 1,300 miles away, and from Cyprus, who came to Antioch also. I think that's neat, don't you? That people from all around the Lord brought to this place to preach the gospel. And the other thing I really love about that is these are no-named disciples. These are just average, ordinary people. It just What does it say there? There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. You know, they weren't looking for personal gain or to be lifted up somehow or oh, I'm the great evangelist just some average everyday ordinary followers of Jesus who went to this place and they they kind of bridged another barrier from speaking only to Jews to speaking to these Hellenists and what does it say in verse 21 and what I want you to see in this next portion of this verse is the Lord, I want, you to, I want you to focus on the word the Lord or, or God to see God's involvement in this activity. I really feel, I mean, it's just a personal opinion that the persecution came by the hand of the Lord because he told these people, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria. And if you, go, if you look on that map, go back to that map again. This is Jerusalem here. Judea was just above that. Samaria was just above that. The Lord said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. But they didn't obey him. They spent all their time in Jerusalem. So all of a sudden, persecution arose because of Stephen. And now, for the first time, they begin to go to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And guess who? guess who was the guy who was the greatest persecutor, the Apostle Paul. So I always say Paul the Apostle spread the church before he was saved and after he was saved. <laughs> but it says in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. So you might think, man, well, persecution hit. we got to run for our lives. And there's this fear that comes on. You get caught up in this idea of trying to preserve and save your life and you're running. But not these people. They were going, and as they were going, they were still telling people all about what the Lord has been doing in their lives and the lives of other people. And the Bible says the hand of the Lord was with them. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. And that's what Jesus wants. He's wanting his message of the gospel to go forth so people could actually turn to him. Their faith might turn to him. Their hearts might turn away from a life of sin and turn to Jesus. That was a result, a byproduct of this persecution. The hand of the Lord was there. People turned to the Lord. And then it says, 
the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So there, there's still some people back in Jerusalem. Not everybody left in the persecution. But all of a sudden, people start hearing reports. Hey, there's something going on up in Antioch. You know, 500 miles away, God's doing something up there. Let's go check it out. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, and he saw the grace of God. What did he see? The grace of God. What is the grace of God? Well, we, we talk about the grace of God being what saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. We understand that. But grace is really multifaceted. There's many, many aspects to God's grace. And one of the things described as God's grace here was these people turning to the Lord. That was the grace of God. They saw the grace of God. They saw something happening in this group of people that they identified as the grace of God. See, to me, that's evidence of the existence of God. They came to this place that didn't know Jesus. They were, you know, Jewish people, Hellenist people, but didn't have this relationship with Jesus. Sometimes people can be almost like in a religious setting. They're just maybe going to church or have a religious background, but they don't have this vibrant life of Jesus that's changing them and making them into something new. But when these brothers from Jerusalem came into this town of Antioch, they began to see something that they called the grace of God. God is doing something here. The hand of the Lord was here. People are turning to the Lord, and we're calling that the grace of God. They saw the grace of God, and it says he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. You know what? The, the, the Christian life is a journey. It's not a one-time event. He's telling them, look, you guys have turned to the Lord. We see the grace of God. Something beautiful is happening here, but we want you to remain faithful to the Lord. He's faithful to you. You remain faithful to him with steadfast purpose. I want to talk just for a few minutes about those words. The grace of God. In the Strong's Concordance, it gives a little definition of grace, which I really like. It's called this, the divine influence upon a heart that's then reflected in the life. See, the grace of God saves me, but it's not like an inactive thing in my life. It actually begins to produce something in me. God's grace becomes alive in my life, changing me. We read in Titus that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live sober and righteous and godly in this present age. So, so grace becomes an, like an active ingredient in my life, in your life, making us different. You know, returning to the Lord, you know, God's hand is with these people when they were preaching. They were turning their hearts to the Lord, and God's grace began to work in them. And they're, they're different. They're, they're different people than they were two months ago or five months ago because God's grace is changing them. And when these brothers from Jerusalem came up, they said, we see the grace of God here. So it is this divine influence upon our lives reflected now God's grace through us to others. How many of you could say that God's grace has been active in my life? Well, see, that's evidence. That's evidence of the existence of God. It is God who did this. It wasn't you. It wasn't you had all the strength to become a better person. God's grace began to be active in you. Now, 
For anybody who doesn't want to believe it, they still won't believe that's the evidence of God. But for those who are tuned into what Jesus is doing and how he works, when you see the lives of people beginning to change because of the grace of God, you can say, this is evidence of God. You can look at that and say, the hand of God is at work here. The grace of God is at work here. And I love to see the testimonies of people, how God has worked in their life, how he has changed them. And even see it, you can stand here and watch a person. When they first come to faith in Jesus, and two months later or three months later, you start seeing things happening in their life. And you, you have to stand back and say, this is evidence of God. This is what God is doing. Yeah, can you taste him? No. Can you touch him? No. Can you see him? No. Can you hear him? But it's evident. And we can also say, look at the grace of God. One of the strongest evidences of God's existence is the lives that are changed. And all of us have a testimony. Don't be, ever be afraid of sharing your testimony because it is the evidence of the existence of God. He told them to remain faithful. I love that word because it's the same word that means to cleave. Like a, a man will leave his father or mother, he will cleave to his wife. Remain faithful. Cleave to the Lord. Have that intimate, connected relationship with him. That's what he's telling these people. Cleave to the Lord. And the idea of a steadfast purpose, he said, he said be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This means... To be intentional. Let me ask you this question here. Have you, have you made a conscious decision to remain faithful to the Lord? To be intentional about it? And it's, it's kind of an interesting word too because it has the idea of the showbread, which is like the Old Testament. They would bring the, the priest would bring this showbread into the temple before the Lord. And it just meant to be seen before the Lord or exposed to the Lord. And so God wants us to be steadfast in our commitment to him, faithful to him, cleave to him, intentional. Say, hey, Lord, your grace has been active in my life, and I want to remain in that place. I, I want to always see the grace of God active in my life. Again, the, the Strong's Concordance definition is divine influence on the heart, Reflected in the life. Don't you want to see God's influence in your life be seen by other people? In your family, in your neighborhood, where you work? That's evidence of the grace of God. When you walk into, when you walk into your job on Monday morning and you're a different person because you've done, you've done something with Jesus, people see it. Say, what in the world's happening with you? It's evidence of God. He's alive. And he's well. And we need to let that grace be seen. And so it says there, he encouraged them to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. This is Barnabas. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Even more people were coming to faith in Christ. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Remember, Saul was a guy who started the persecution. And now he's coming to this church that actually started because of the persecution. 
And he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's really interesting too, because it's kind of like people began to look at this, the grace of God that was happening in Antioch. And they were wondering, who are these people? They're not really following Jewishness like they used to. They're different. Something is going on here. It's called the grace of God. It said, you know what? We think we're going to call them Christians because it just means like Christ. That's what they started seeing. They started seeing the life of Christ becoming evident in these people. And they said, all we can do is call them Christians. Now today, that, that name sometimes has lost its meaning. We call a person a Christian because they live in America sometimes. Or because they went to church once in their life. Or they, their name's on a membership roll somewhere. When, it, when, it, when the name was first given, it was given because people had the grace of God alive and active in their life. They said, you know what? I'm just going to call you Christ-like. Because that's what I see. I see the life of Christ being lived through you. Wouldn't that be great if that was all of our testimony? That we were Christian, just not in name only, but because it was truly a reflection of what's happening. And this evidence of the existence of God. He's alive in my life, and he's changing me. Now, I want to close this message today in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 11. Finally, brothers. Now, let me say before I read this that, you know, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And if you know about the Corinthian church, it was full of problems. All kinds. There was division. There was immorality. There was, I don't know, just people taking each other to court. Not able to resolve conflict. There was rampant divorce. You know, it was just fighting about who's their leader. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. There was just all kinds of problems in this church. Abuse of spiritual gifts. Abusing communion. They were going to have a communion together, and some people were going home drunk. Others were going home hungry. That was crazy. But that was the Corinthian church. A church called a church by the great apostle Paul, by the Lord. And so... At the end of his second book, he writes to this group of people who are struggling to let the grace of God live in them. And he gives them five exhortations, which I want to talk to you about. I think it's uh, five things that we can do to let the grace of God live through us. Okay, here's what they are. Finally, brothers, he says, number one, rejoice. I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes. Number two, Aim for restoration. Number three, comfort one another. Number four, agree with one another. And number five, he says, live in peace. And then he says, kind of as a byproduct of that, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That's what we want, isn't it? We want the God of love and peace to be with us. We want the evidence of God to be part of our community. And here he's telling this group of people who were really having a struggle 
letting the grace of God live through them, these five things, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live in peace, and the God of peace and love will be with you. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Come here, Jerry. (laughs) All the saints greet you. All the saints greet you. And it says then, which I love this, the ending of this statement here, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want, the grace of God being active and evident. And so it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't need that? In a community of believers who are trying to show evidence of God by our lives, we need the love of God. God is love. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, and he calls this the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be in participation with him, walking with him, being guided by him, being corrected by him, being taught by him. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so it's a great ending in these two books of Corinthians to a church that's really struggling to be an evidence of God's grace. The Corinthian church is one that many people in our world will look at and say, ah, the church is full of hypocrites. Ah, the church is full of problems. Ah, the church is this or the church is that. I mean, that's, that's how they look at the church today, isn't it? You, you hear that all around. So why don't we say, hey, let's be different. Let's be a, a, a church or a body of people who let the grace of God be lived out so that people could look and say, I may not agree with what the church is all about, but there's certainly evidence that God is at work in those people. And so let me talk just briefly about these five things. Rejoice. This means be full of cheer. I'll tell you what, our world today is full of depression. Full of depression. It's everywhere. And it, it bleeds over into our lives as, as believers. I don't say, we, all of us struggle. All of us have hardships. All of us have bad days. And there are struggles we have. But one of, the, one of the marks, I believe, of the grace of God in our lives is that we can rejoice. Even in the midst of tribulation. Even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of hardship. There can be a joy in our lives. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that we walk around and falsely say, you know, I, I just cut my leg off and I'm full of joy. But, there, but there's something like, there is, there's this inner thing that comes from the Holy Spirit about rejoicing because of a truth that we understand. And that is that there is a heaven, that there is a future, there is something beyond this life. And even though I may struggle in this world, and I have things that press upon me, I can still, in the deepest part of the core of my being, have joy. And that is evidence of God. That's the evidence of God in your life. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. When? Always. And again I say, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Some of you have a version that might say, be perfect. 
or aim for restoration. The word in the Greek language, it really means to make things the way they ought to be. That's really what it means. It's kind of like the word was used when they were mending nets, like when the fishermen would go out and they would uh, fish. Sometimes you get holes in the nets. How many of you know it's hard to fish when there's holes in your nets? So when they would mend the nets, they make them useful again. They make them what they ought to be. They, they make them so they can fulfill their purpose. So the word mending the nets is this same word, aim for perfection or aim for restoration. Restore it. Make it what it should be. Another way that word was used was, was to set a broken arm. Like if you ever broke your arm before, it's not really that useful, is it? But somebody who can set your arm and let it mend, then it's, it's back to its intended purpose again. So when Paul was writing to these people, he says, aim for restoration or be perfect. What he's saying is, be what God has intended you to be. And I'll tell you what, I, I look at my life and I'm thinking, there's some areas of my life where I am exactly what God intended me to be, but there's some areas of my life where I need to grow. I say, hey, Lord, I want to be different. I want to, I want to be a different person I want to be what you intended for me to be. I want to aim for restoration. Hebrews 13, 21 says, May God equip you. That's the word. Equip is the word. Restoration, equip. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. See, this idea of, of restoration means God is moving us or equipping us or mending our nets or fixing our broken arms so that we can do his will. We can, be, we can be living in this broken world and even experiencing hardships and difficulties in our own lives and yet still be in the will of God, still be doing what God created us for. May he equip you with everything that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And I love that about the Lord, that when you draw close to him, he starts working in you what's pleasing to him. What is that? Evidence of the grace of God. Evidence of God. Because he is moving us toward obedience. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. That's the word. So you see from these verses here that this idea of aiming for restoration has to do with God's work in me. I, I want to be everything he's wanted me to be. But it also extends over to me helping somebody else be what God wants them to be. That, that I care about what's happening in the lives of my brothers and sisters. And so if I see somebody who is caught in a transgression, I don't want to start gossiping about it. I don't want to sit back and start pointing a finger. I don't want to laugh at them because they fell because I didn't like him anyhow. My heart wants to be moved to say, let me set the bone. Or let me, let me mend the nets in this person's life so they can be everything God wants them to be. And so you find in this idea of aiming for restoration that it is one of the things that actually helps to build community. A community that says, God's alive. Look what's happening in that group of people there. Look what's happening over there. Because we look at brothers and sisters of the Lord and we say, hey, what can I do to help restore, to help mend, to help 
bring that back together again. And so if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Third thing Paul told them was comfort one another. Um, This is really about taking an interest in the spiritual well-being of people. You know, when we think of the word comfort, sometimes we think of just like somebody, like my, my pet dog died, so we go and comfort them. It's not, it's more than that. It may include that, but it's, it's this idea of exhorting, encouraging, you know, urging people on in their walk with the Lord. It's what it really means. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, let us Consider how to stir up one another. That's the word. How to stir up one another. Anybody here been stirred up lately? Well, maybe somebody needs to come and stir you up. But if you're, if you're stirred up, find somebody who's not. How many here have not been stirred up lately? Let me see your hand. No one's raising their hand. <laughs> All right. I was going to try to join you together. But look. All of us need this from time to time. We need to be stirred. It's like making baked beans or something. You know, you, you got, every once in a while, you got to go stir the pot and say, hey, let's keep this thing going here. So God wants to stir us up. Stir up one another to what? Love and good works. What's that going to show? It's going to show the grace of God. It's going to show evidence of God. Stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. How many here see the day drawing near? It is. I mean, we're one day closer to Jesus coming back than we were yesterday. You can say that at least. But as we see the day approaching, so much more, he says, should we stir one another up. Encourage one another urging one another on to love and good works. Next is, he said, agree with one another. Well, it doesn't mean that we all think the same thing. I mean, obviously, in the Corinthian church, Paul talked to them about, you know, some people here might feel free in their conscience to eat meat. Others may not. So you can have a difference like that. But there needs to be sort of a, an agreement in our hearts or in our minds about who we are, what God is doing, and what he wants to do in us as a people. Unified in that sense. It's it's not conformity, it's unity is what he's after. So often in our lives, we highlight what things divide us. You know, we look for division. We try to embrace division. We're better than them because we believe in this and they don't. Or we do things this way, they just haven't been enlightened as much as we are. Or stuff like that. We kind of carry that spirit with us sometimes as, as, as churches, as believers. And he's calling us here to this idea of agreeing with one another. And so Philippians 2 says this, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship in the Spirit or participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's what he's talking about. Be of the same mind, of the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's what God wants for his people, to be of one mind, to be in one accord. 
It doesn't mean we all believe all the same things. There's room for differences. But there is certainly a unity of heart, a unity of mind in us moving forward with God and what he wants to do in his world and in his church and in us as believers. And then finally, live in peace. You ever been around people that just have a need for constant drama? Anybody here living that way today? Jesus wants to give us peace. Here's what it says in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Peace is much more than this, but there's something about just having the peace of God in your life, in your home, in your church, in your fellowship of people, having peace there. Because, again, there, there's so much of this stirring up of trouble and conflict and drama that is so negative and so destructive and it's so, I don't know, it just, it, it just wears down the hearts of people. And so as much as possible, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. So I'd like you to stand as we close in prayer. People are saying there is no evidence of God. But I believe it's all around us, the evidence of God. And it really has to do with the grace of God being alive and active in the lives of his people. I think it would be a good thing to do if you see God working in the life of somebody, go point it out. Say, hey, you know what? I see God at work in your life. And just just call it out. Say, hey, I see the grace of God. It's evident to me. I see the Lord doing something wonderful in your life. And just encourage a person's walk with Jesus. But take one of these things. Maybe one of these five things you could take on your life this week and say, hey, Lord, I want to pursue that. Maybe it's rejoicing. Maybe you're, maybe you're a person who walks around in a constant state of despair. Maybe, maybe you watch too much news on TV and you're constantly beat down by all the negativity and things you see. And you say, you know what you need to do is say, God, fill me with your joy. Let me be a person who rejoices. I don't mean go live in a cave somewhere so you don't know what's going on around you. But getting a perspective that it's not all about what's on this world. That there is a reason to rejoice, every one of us. Aim for restoration. Maybe in your own life, God wants to do something to mend the nets in your life. He wants you to become useful. He wants you to get to the place where you can be what he made you to be. Maybe you've been ravaged by some sin. Maybe there's some, you just haven't been pursuing the Lord with all your heart. But you're saying here, hey, Lord, I want to be what you call me to be. My arm feels broken or my nets feel broken. Mend them up. Let me be what you've called me to be. Or maybe you're a person who feels strengthened in that area and you can reach out to somebody else who needs to be restored. And you go to them and you lift them up and you encourage them. But collectively, we can become a good fishing net for the Lord. Comfort one another. You know, take an active role in stirring people up. There used to be a brother in our church when we first got saved. His name is... Chummer Morris, he was known as the exhorter. 
And after church, every Sunday, you would see him grab somebody, push him up against a wall, and stand there for 15 minutes and exhort him. And he would just, he was, it was so, if you had a Chalmer Morris experience, you walked out of there thinking, man, God, thank you so much for speaking into my life. And that was his ministry. He was, he was the exhorter. He stirred us on to love and good works. Maybe that's you. Agree with one another. Are you the antagonist? Always has to throw in a wrench in the spokes. Always looking for, you know, whatever. Let's try to agree with one another. Again, I'm not talking about conformity. Just have unity. Let, let the love of Christ reign in our hearts here. And then live in peace. If you're living in a life of drama, you know, sometimes you can't control all those things that come into your life. But you can control what's happening in here. And you can say, Lord, in the midst of all that's happening in my life, let me have peace. Let me have the peace of God in my heart so people can see the evidence that God is alive and real. So, Father, I pray for all of us here today that as individuals and collectively as a church, we could be showing forth the evidence of God's grace. Just like those brothers who came to Antioch and they saw the grace of God that was there. May people see the grace of God when they experience our lives. Lord, speak to each one of us. What is one area this week that we can take and begin to grow in? One of these five areas, Lord. I pray you'd help us to be faithful to step into it. And you begin to change us and let the grace of God become evident in my life. I ask you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hey.